Well, hi, thanks for joining me on this episode of Business and Legal Week in Review. This is utlradio.com, your business success and legal information station, and I'm your host, Peter Lamont. Now, normally we have, um, or I'm joined by my co-host, Bob Hughes. Unfortunately, Bob can't make it today. He has some personal things that he has to take care of. So I'm going to be going it alone, and we'll see how well that actually works out, but we're going to give it a shot. So before we get into today's stories, uh, I want to talk just a little bit about what went on last week. So last week we had an interview with Lori Cheek, which was good because, you know, for those of you who have followed the show, you know that Lori's been on twice before, and she really has had her ups and downs, but has now, I think, developed a very unique product, a unique app that she's working on and, and taken her company, Cheek, I think to a whole new level. It's a, it's a very cool Bluetooth-enabled app, and she's so nice and so open because she's so willing to share with us, like, hey, this didn't work, and I learned that that you know this approach was no good. And I think that that's really uh, commendable to be so open and honest as an entrepreneur. There's so many people out there that are so kind of tight-lipped, they don't want to share. And I think that that's this sort of, I don't know, mentality that, only you, there's like a winner and a loser, I guess, is the mentality that I'm talking about. So if you're not the winner, then you're you're the loser. And so I don't want to share any information with you because if I divulge any of the things that I've learned to you, then you're going to beat me. And that's not the right mentality to have. And that's what I think is so uh, appealing about Lori Cheek. She's just an honest, hardworking girl. She's got a very, very uh, driven sense, a very strong personality, and I think that she's doing great. So we had her on last week. We also talked about, our obviously, our business legal Q&A, and our business Q&A, our legal Q&A. We dealt with all that last week as well. And uh, so now, you know, here we are with a new week, some new things going on. And I want to also let you know that um, we are going to be revamping the utlradio.com website yet again. And it's primarily because we've received a lot of comments and feedback about things that you guys would like to see um, and you'd like to see it done differently. So we're going to be doing that, and hopefully that works better for, for everyone. Now, if you have questions or comments or there's something that you like or don't like, you know, reach out to us because your comments are so important, your feedback is so important. It really helps us make the show better, make the website better, make better videos, and you can find ways to contact us at utlradio.com. You can leave a note in, um, you know, or send us an email through the website. You can send us a comment on Facebook, something on Twitter. You could leave a comment on Blog Talk Radio in the YouTube channel, anywhere. I mean, we, we just, we're all over, and I want to make it easy for you to be able to contact us. And before we get rolling into today's topics. In the event that you'd like to call in and talk to me and, and address one of these shows with me or address one of these topics with me, you can do so by calling in at 347-855-8831 and we'll bring you on the air live and we can chat. All right, so let's get into the first story. We've got copyright challenge against Google Books Vanquish. Now, Google Books, I don't know if anybody really uses it but Google Books is kind of a cool idea. It allows you to see portions of a book. And I use it sometimes either to kind of get the sense of 
whether or not I want to read the book. Maybe there's a piece of information that I found helpful in the book. So it's, it's a cool site, but as you can imagine, people get upset because they believe that their copyright is being infringed upon because Google is showing so much of the book. So in a case that tests the boundaries of fair use, Google prevailed in the Second Circuit on Friday against claims that its search engine, accessing snippets of tens of millions of digital copies of books, breached copyright. Now, today's decision underlines what people who use the service tell us. Google Books gives them a useful and easy way to find books they want to read and buy, while at the same time benefiting copyright holders, Google said in a statement. We're pleased the court has confirmed that the project is fair use, acting like a card catalog for the digital age. The Authors Guild Executive Director Mary Rassenberger expressed her disappointment that the circuit did not reverse what she called a flawed interpretation of the fair use doctrine. America owes its thriving literacy culture or literary culture to copyright protection, she said. It is because of that success that today we have we take copyright incentives for granted and that courts as respected as the Second Circuit are unable to see the damaging effect that users such as Google will have on authors' potential income. Friday's ruling continues the Guild's trend of unsuccessful litigation to curtail the free dissemination of information over the Internet. Indeed, one year earlier, the same Second Circuit panel rejected the Guild's bid to shutter Half a Trust, a database that disseminated the collections of more than 80 university and research libraries. Google is making a digital copy to provide a search function that uh, is, is a transformative use, which augments public knowledge by making available information about plaintiffs' books without providing the public with a substantial substitute for matter protected by the plaintiff's copyright interest in the original work or derivative works of them, Judge Pierre Level wrote for the court. The same is true, at least under present conditions, of Google's provision of the snippet function. Though the Authors Guild has already announced plans to appeal the decision to the U.S. Supreme Court, Shirley called it unlikely that the high court would take a petition because the case keeps consistent the law of fair use among the circuits. Now, the fair use doctrine is really what's at issue here. And a fair use is sort of a defense to copyright infringement. And it essentially is an exception to the copyright protection um, that permits or, I guess, authorizes limited use of copyright-protected materials without acquiring the protections from the holder, the, the copyright holder, the, the rights holder. And it can be done on, on numerous levels. Some of it's for educational use, um, you know, but the idea that Google has here is, hey, we're creating a catalog, and that is fair use. So let's just take a look at what the actual statute says, and that's 17 U.S.C. 107. Uh, aside from all the, the legal mumbo-jumbo, the fair use of a copyrighted work, blah, 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 for purposes such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, including multiple copies for classroom use, scholarship, or research, is not an infringement of copyright. In determining whether the use make, made of a work in particular um, is considered fair use, the court's going to look at the purpose and the character of the use, including whether such use is of commercial nature 
or for nonprofit educational purposes, the nature of the copyrighted work, the amount and substantial uh, uh, and substantiality of the portion of use or portion used in relation to the copyrighted work as a whole, and the effect of the use upon the potential market for value of the copyright work, copyrighted work. So basically in applying that, the court says there's not enough of the book that's being disseminated to have an impact on the copyright holder. The purpose of the book, you know, sharing this online, is not for financial gain for Google. It's more as a catalog or cataloging um, sort of process that Google is engaged in. And it's for research and educational purposes. You know, it also... I think, in my opinion, causes some people who might not have been interested in a book to buy the book. So I don't see it as infringing on copyright either, and neither did the Second Circuit. Uh, Obviously, the Authors Guild is upset, and and they're criticizing the Second Circuit. Um, But really, I think that the fair use doctrine is a good doctrine because it would be, I mean, imagine without fair use, you go and you try to talk about something on the news, can't do it, copyright infringement. You write a paper, and even if you cite to it, copyright infringement. I mean, there's the, the absurdity of it goes on and on. And I do understand that there's this, this fine line between infringing upon somebody's rights and protecting the fair use doctrine. But in this case, I think the Second Circuit got it right. All right, so next, now we, we've talked about Volkswagen a lot recently because we all know what Volkswagen did which it blows my mind, and I'm sure it does you, how Volkswagen, uh, such a massively successful company, a large company with so much history, could do something as stupid as create a software program that avoids um, or masks, I should say, emissions testing, and that's exactly what they did. So they didn't want to have to build a better car that complied, I guess, with the emissions standards. So they built a workaround that was really just, you know, fraud. I don't know how else you'd say it. It's just fraud. So a class is now asking for permission to stop making payments to Volkswagen. This is interesting. So this comes from courthousenews.com. In a new blow, blow against Volkswagen, a class of people who bought cars with the illegal emissions defeat device, asked the federal judge to let them stop making their monthly payments until the issues are resolved in court. Lead plaintiff Will Ballow says the 1975 FTC holder rule allows them to sue Volkswagen subsidiary VW Credit for its abuse of credit. He also wants VW ordered not to report anyone in the punitive class to credit bureaus because they stopped making their payments. More than 400 lawsuits, most of them class actions, have been filed in the United States alone since Volkswagen admitted it installed cheating software in 11 million vehicles worldwide since 2009, about 500,000 of which were sold in the U.S. So far as courthouse news can determine, Ballows, the first lawsuit that has asked the court for permission to stop making payments. Volkswagen faces as much as $18 billion in clean air fines in the United States alone, aside from civil lawsuits. Nations around the world are investigating, and the company could face criminal charges in Germany. It's lost about one-third of its market capitalization as well, as VW share prices have tanked since the scandal broke. 
Market analysts expect that the company will survive, but gone are its glory days, which it reached this summer as the world's largest auto company by sales. Volkswagen CEO Martin Winkerkorn, who resigned as the scandal group, blamed the cheating software on a few rogue engineers, but the German magazine Der Spiegel reported this week that as many as 30 VW employees may have been involved. Volkswagen models with defeat devices include the Jetta, Beetle, Golf, and Passat. Volkswagen claimed the clean diesel system cut greenhouse gas emissions by 25%. Um, but, you know, who cares because they created this device that defeated everything is my point. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has ordered Volkswagen to recall the vehicles and modify or repair them to comply with the Clean Air Act. But Ballow's claim, as have numerous other plaintiffs, uh, is that it will cause substantial changes to the car's performance and resale value. The resale value argument I totally get because would you go out and buy a used Volkswagen knowing that it had the cheat device in it? I would say probably not. I, I definitely would not. So, um, you know, he's, again, suing under this theory of the FTC holder rule. This rule is designed to prevent the widespread use of credit terms which compel consumers to pay a creditor, even if the seller's conduct would not entitle the seller to be paid. That is, consumers can assert against VW Credit Inc. and VW Credit Leasing Limited the fraud of Volkswagen Group of America Inc. and withhold payments pending resolution of their claims, including their claims for rescission due to fraud or illegality, the complaint states. Ballo seeks class certification an injunction to prevent VW Credit from accepting payments from consumers on contracts that relate to the violating vehicles and reporting derogatory or negative information on credit reports of consumers who currently own the violating vehicles and who are, by federal law, excused from payment due to the fraud and illegality of the contracts that they entered for the purchase or lease of the violating vehicles. This, from a contract standpoint, is an interesting case because in order to have a contract, you need to have a, they call it the meeting of the minds. You need to know what it is that you're buying. You need to be on the same page and understand that you're buying a car that is supposed to work. And when they lie to you like this and they put these, um, this, this software, this you know, emissions uh, defeating software, you're not really getting what you paid for, are you? You paid for a vehicle that was to perform in a particular way. And some people are going to argue, I would imagine Volkswagen's going to argue in the defense that um, the defeat software has absolutely no impact on the performance of the car or the resale value of the car. But again, I say I would not buy it. So how many of you out there would go ahead and buy the VW knowing that it's got the defeat software in it? Wouldn't you worry moving forward, even if they fixed it, that either the car would have problems or you would have problems getting your car inspected and passing inspection because of the defeat software. So I think that um, there's this nice sort of breach of contract claim because you entered into a contract for one particular item and you did not get what you thought you were going to get. You didn't get what you were entitled to. You didn't get what you paid for. You didn't get what you were expected or what you had expected. So I think it's possible, possible, that you could make an argument that the contracts that all of these people for their Volkswagens entered into 
are at least voidable, if not void. I would I would probably argue that they're more voidable than void. Voidable meaning that one party can void the contract on their own because of um, a breach. And it's separate from void, which is there was never any meeting of the minds. There was never any agreement in place. I think this is more of a voidable versus void issue. But interesting to see moving forward how this is going to play out and what impact it's going to have on Volkswagen. I think this is going to have a significant blow uh, or significant impact on Volkswagen. Just the financial aspect of it alone, we're talking about probably billions of dollars you know, in lawsuits, in lawyer fees, in uh, paying any penalties and fines, in trying to recover from a, a PR standpoint. So it's really kind of amazing how one issue, one failed you know, issue here could ruin the company. I mean, really ruin it. Now, I know that, that a lot of the analysts are saying that the company's not going anywhere. I think that, that this is such a significant blow. You know, who knows? They might even have to file for bankruptcy and try to recover from that and, and then move forward. So I don't think that Volkswagen will go away forever, but definitely a significant blow and makes you think twice about Volkswagens, doesn't it? So uh, I'd be interested to know if any of you out there have a Volkswagen. What are your feelings about the car and the cheat software? Um, and any of you out there who were perhaps looking for a Volkswagen as a possible car that you were going to purchase, I'd love to know if, because of the cheat software, you would now not want to purchase the car. So that's um, that's something that I think we should talk about. It's interesting. All right. Next, we're going to move into a student who waited too long to sue a peeping dean. This again from courthousenews.com. Five male college students waited too long to complain that the dean of students watched them shower in his home, so says the Mississippi, uh, Mississippi Supreme Court. Richard Darden worked for the Manchester Educational Foundation for 25 years. He was a teacher, golf coach, and football trainer before eventually becoming dean of students. In May 2010, several students found him watching them in the shower from his home after football practice. Darden self-reported the incident to Manchester's headmaster, and the school fired him. He also pleaded guilty to three counts of voyeurism. Darden was sentenced to 15 years of probation and was ordered to register as a sex offender. After Harden's arrest, five former Manchester student-athletes sued Darden, Manchester, Yahoo City Medical Clinic, and Dr. William Thompson, among other defendants. Charlie Radden, Kyle Corley, Jacob Woodard, Gerald Hallowell, and Brian Stevenson asserted claims of battery by improper physicals, negligence, invasion of privacy, and infliction of emotional distress. They claim that Darden, who also held a medical degree but was never licensed, assisted Thompson in giving them their physical exams, which were required for them to participate in sports. However, Thompson never received complaints about Darden's behavior during the physicals. The plaintiffs testified that Darden's house was used as a common meeting ground and that players showered there because the showers at the field house were dirty and used for storage. While the plaintiffs stated that they sometimes wrestled with Darden at his house, none of them pres present evidence 
that Darden had spied on them for his reported or from his reported secret room. The trial court granted Manchester's motion for summary judgment because the statute of limitations had expired as the alleged act took place before or during 2003. The plaintiffs appealed, arguing that they did not know of their injuries during the wrestling matches and physicals until Darden was arrested. The Mississippi Supreme Court disagreed, affirming the trial court's ruling in a decision written by Justice Michael Randolph. If the touching was inappropriate at the time it occurred, it was inappropriate no matter what Darden was thinking during the contact, he wrote. The claim for wrongful touching began at the time of the touching, not eight years later. Illustrates the importance of knowing when to bring your claim and not uh, blowing the statute of limitations. We've talked about statute of limitations in the past, and, and I think that oftentimes people overlook the statute of limitations. It's something that we hear about all the time and certainly something that we are at, at the very least familiar with, but when people decide that they're going to sue, I think that... Um, the statute of limitations kind of just leaves their mind all together. I've had some people call recently who have had breach of contract claims that were like 15 years old and they want to know if they can do. And, you know, you try to explain to them that, that you can't because your statute of limitations has run. And there's all kinds of arguments. And, and look, some of the arguments are good, but the bottom line is that if you don't bring your claim within the time allotted, by the statute of limitations for your state, then you're barred. That That's just the way the law is. It's, it's kind of a, um, a tough pill, a bitter pill for some people to swallow, but it is what it is, and it prevents people from making claims 30 years after things have happened. And, uh, and, and that's, you know, that's really important, I think, here. It's illustrated here because... Why, if they knew about this, right, when they were, they were touched, allegedly, why didn't they do something about it at that moment? Why wait eight years later and then try to bring the claim? And it sounds to me like maybe it happened, maybe it didn't happen. I mean, clearly the guy admitted that he was a peeping Tom uh, watching them while they shower, but didn't admit to any of this other activity. And it makes me almost wonder are these kids telling the truth or is it something made up? Is it a way for them to make money? I mean, I know it's cynical and skeptical, um, but you have to wonder that because why eight years later? So the court here definitely got it right, I think, with respect to the statute of limitations. And uh, it, it also you know, highlights another thing, which is I don't understand in this day and age why a kid or a parent would want to put themselves in a situation where you're at somebody's house showering like this. I and mean, this is totally weird. When I used to play high school sports, I remember going to a soccer camp uh, down in South Jersey, and we were there for over a week. And, and you know, there was a communal shower. And I felt weird as a, a, a teenager, you know, with showering in public. It was just something that I wasn't comfortable with. And I remember one of the trainers being in there and, and slapping kids on the butt and, you know, just, in my opinion, inappropriate. And and I would then stagger my, my shower time so I didn't have to go take a shower with this guy. Why anybody would go over to a coach's house and take a shower in their house blows my mind. I would never 
want my kid doing something like that. Not necessarily because I think everybody's out there with a secret room spying on kids, but, you know, it, it's just something that I would not want. So I think that you've got to look at this idea of sports and locker room stuff and boys will be boys because I think that there are people out there, unfortunately, that are taking advantage of kids. I mean, kids don't necessarily know that, that it's a dumb idea to go to another guy's house and take a shower there because it's the coach. They respect him. So what are they to think? But I think personally that's something that uh, we need to look at. All right, moving along, Courthouse News tells us about a tennis ace who blames a slip and fall for his U.S. Open exit. Canadian tennis ace Eugene Bouchard had to drop out of the U.S. Open after she slipped, fell, and got a concussion in the ladies' locker room following a match. She says in federal court, Bouchard and her partner Nick Kygoras, I totally murdered that name, had just won their mixed doubles match in the U.S. Tennis Association National Tennis Center in Queens on September 4th when she entered the physiotherapy room in the woman's locker room. I don't even know what you do there. That's when the 21-year-old says she got a concussion after slipping on water from the ice baths that players used. The 25th-ranked singles player was set to play two matches the next morning but had to pull herself out of the running with a $3.3 million purse. At the time she was forced to withdraw, Miss Bouchard was still in contention for the championship in women's singles, women's doubles, and mixed doubles, her 10-page lawsuit states. She was the only female player still in contention in all three brackets. She played in the French and Australian Open and was once ranked the fifth-best player in the world, but being forced to drop out of the U.S. Open caused her rankings to fall at least 13 spots, she says, and contends her ranking will likely, likely keep dropping. Representatives with the Tennis Association declined to comment on the lawsuit Thursday afternoon. Bouchard seeks unspecified damages for negligence. Okay. She was ranked 25th. And theoretically, yes, she was still in contention. Um, But does that claim for damages work? Do we really believe that she had a shot to win the $3.3 million purse? I'm going to be cynical and say no. Now, anything can happen in sports. We all know that. Um, but this is a, 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 a damage uh, that arises out of a negligence claim. And we've talked about negligence before. But let's go through it one more time. So in a negligence claim, you need to be able to prove a few things. That the person who you're suing had a duty. They owed you a duty of care. That they breached their duty of care. That you... Uh, suffered damages, and that the damages you suffered were the direct and proximate cause of the defendant's breach of duty. Okay, So in this case, she's claiming that the floors were wet because people got in and out of the ice baths. Um, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how it resolves because it's an ice bath. And unless you've got somebody mopping the floors on a nonstop basis, as people get in and out of the ice bath, how are you going to keep the floors clean or dry? And that's really where the argument's going to hinge because did they owe her a duty of care to keep the the locker room in reasonably safe condition? Absolutely. 
Did they breach that? Well, that's the, that's the question. So it might hinge on foreseeability. Was it foreseeable that someone would slip and fall because of water around the ice bath? Or is this an open and obvious condition um, or, or more of a transitory condition uh, that they had no opportunity to do anything about? So that's really where it's going to fall, and that's what, what's going to be looked at. Then assume for a minute that the, there is a breach. Assume that they could have done something differently to prevent the water from accumulating on the floor, and, uh, and uh, as a result of that, she slipped. Then you've got to look at the damages, and you've got to say, what are her actual damages? So I think it's too speculative to be able to say that she's entitled to significant damages like $3.3 million because she could have won the $3.3 million purse, but she was ranked 25. So is that a, a damage that, that's a, a reasonable damage claim? I'm going to say no on that one. Um, she might still recover, but it really, I think, is going to depend on um, on the actual nature of her injuries. It doesn't sound like she was severely injured or permanently injured. Sure, I mean, concussion or um, any sort of head trauma is concerning, but it just doesn't sound to me like she's got a ton of damages Unless, of course, somebody buys the argument that she had a shot at the money and that as a result of the slip and fall, she was unable to participate or compete. We'll see where that goes. All right, moving along. Police officers hurt by illegally sold guns to get $6 million from a Wisconsin shop. All right, so Mashable.com reporting that jurors ordered a Wisconsin gun store to pay nearly $6 million on Tuesday to two Milwaukee police officers who were shot and seriously wounded by guns purchased at the store. The ruling came in a negligence lawsuit filed against the store, Badger Guns, by the two officers. The lawsuit alleges the shop allowed an illegal sale despite several warning signs that the gun was being sold to a straw buyer who someone was buying or someone who was buying the gun for someone who couldn't legally do so. Jurors sided with the officers, ruling that the store was negligent in selling the gun. Defense attorneys declined to comment after Tuesday's verdict. An attorney for the officers said he expected years of appeals. Officer Brian Norberg and retired Officer Graham Kunish were both shot after they stopped Julius Burton for riding his bike on the sidewalk in the summer of 2009. Surveillance video shows the officers scuffled with Burton and slammed him into a wall before he shot them both in the face. Investigators said Burton got the weapon a month before the confrontation after giving $40 to Jacob Collins to make the purchase from Badger Guns in West Milwaukee, a Milwaukee suburb. Jurors ordered the store to pay Norberg $1.5 million and Kunish $3.6 million in addition to $730,000 in punitive damages. The gun shop's defense lawyers denied wrongdoing and said the owner, Adam Allen, couldn't be held financially responsible for crimes connected to a weapon sold at his shop. Badger Guns, previously known as Badger Outdoors, had since closed and been replaced by a gun shop called Brew City Shooter Supplies. All three entities have been run by Allen family members. Authorities have said more than 500 firearms recovered from crime scenes had been traced back to Badger Guns and Badger Outdoors, 
making it the number one crime gun dealer in America, according to a 2005 charging document from an unrelated federal case. A former federal agent had also said the shop had failed to use necessary precautions to present, prevent straw purchases. Burton pleaded guilty to two counts of first-degree attempted intentional homicide and is serving an 80-year sentence. The man who purchased the gun, Jacob Collins, got a two-year sentence after pleading guilty to making a straw purchase for an underage buyer. What do you guys think about that? I mean, should he, you know, the, the gun owner be held liable for this? I mean, this is a lot of money. 1.5 million, 3.6 million, and 730,000 in punitive damages. <clears throat> now, obviously, gun control is always a debated topic, very hot. Um, what do you think about this? I mean, do you think that this is justice or is this just excessive? Um, I think that it really, you know, falls on, on the area of, of whether or not Alan, the store owner, knew that the purchaser of the guns was, in fact, a straw purchaser, meaning somebody buying a gun illegally for, or legally for somebody who otherwise should not have it. I don't know. I mean, they're the number one, according to this study, a number one crime gun dealer in America. I mean, so they're doing something wrong. And I think that the, the prior history um, probably came into play here to an extent because this isn't the first time, this isn't accidental. It almost looks like it's a a systemic uh, issue that they're having where they're doing something either negligently all the time or intentionally. We don't even know, but uh, interesting story. All right, moving along into the field of magic and taxes, David Copperfield and those taxing Canadians. CourthouseNews.com reports that magician David Copperfield claims his business manager, R.C. Barrow and Company, breached their fiduciary duty and stuck him with a $471,000 Canadian tax bill. This filed in L.A. Superior Court. Copperfield is suing Robert Barrow, claiming he didn't file the magician's Canadian tax returns for 2008 and 2009 and also didn't let him know the previous accountant failed to file a 2007 return. Copperfield also claims the accountant hired a Canadian firm to deal with the tax snafu and failed to monitor them to ensure things were handled properly. So, breach of fiduciary duty lawsuit. I wonder if there's any magic trick that David Copperfield has that could make his tax bill go away. But clearly, if this is true and the allegations are correct and the accountant failed to file the taxes and failed to to follow through, it definitely sounds to me like he might have a claim. And, you know, you have to wonder how much money is um, available to Copperfield uh, in suing them. And I would imagine probably enough, depending upon what what type of uh, policy the, the accountant had. So poor David Copperfield, hopefully he will get out of that. But, you know, I wonder how much money he makes on an annual basis doing magic. I mean, that's, right? Isn't that an amazing job? Do some magic tricks and make millions of dollars? Wow, I wish I could do that. All right, so that's going to wrap up the legal business news for the week. I want to just make reference 
to what I think is is really interesting, and it is an article in Inc.com, and I thought we'd talk about it for a few minutes. 25 executives share their daily habits responsible for their success. And, you know, to go along with the, the business portion of this show, and we talk about, you know, the business success on, on, on the Thursday show and how to become a better business person or entrepreneur, I think it's a good idea to look at these top 25 executives and what they do, what are their daily habits. So we're going to go through this article now. So number one is never waste a lunch. Since I eat every day, it doesn't make sense that I waste the time alone. I find that when my days are filled with breaking bread with other owners, clients, key employees, close friends, not as many crises come up. Why? Maybe because most crises originate from our closest circles, or maybe I'm just better informed. Either way, it's a smoother sale. And this is a comrade, the CEO of Antis Roofing and Waterproofing. Um, another one, write one thank you note every day. Uh, here's the next one. Be in the moment. Number four, CEOs are separated from their businesses and their teams by taking the business of the team. More effective as a leader by being with the team. Number six is to teach. Number seven, work out, exercise for managing stress. And everyone knows that starting a business can be stressful. Working out, even for a short amount of time, helps take the edge off after a busy day and refreshes your mind and body. This is from um, Davion Ross, co-founder and CEO of Short Tracker which makes wearable tech for basketball that tracks shot attempts. Plan number eight, plan tomorrow, today. Number nine, enter every day with a positive attitude. Number 10, get up early. Number 11, hibernate to relieve stress. That's an interesting one. Bears must have been stressed. Uh, Number 12, schedule some days as focus days and some days as free days. Number 13, focus a few minutes every day on the young members of the organization. 14, always carry a dry erase marker in your pocket. 15, ban the one-hour meeting. 16, do an endurance race with your team. 17, do one thing at a time. Do it well and then move on to the next. This is by um, Kamal Karia, founder and CEO of Janubi, creator of the NubiDo, a web-based track management system. But this is something that I believe in strongly. Uh, I've talked about the idea of multitasking and how I don't believe that multitasking is something you should be lauding as an ability. Multitasking, in my mind, is trying to do too many things at once, and then you're a jack-of-all-trades, master of none, so I would prefer the, you know, to see people do one thing at a time, do it well, and then move on to the next task. And this is what number 17 is. I think that's good advice. Number 18, give and request feedback in the moment. 19, take everyone out to dinner. 20, read when you wake up. This is from Casey Hobson, founder and CEO of Event Rebels. First thing I do every morning is spend 30 minutes reading a book. The topic is whatever I feel like. Sometimes it's business. Other times it may be history or fiction. Currently it's science. 21, automate everything possible. This is from Rob Ray, the founder of Whitebox. We've built dozens of appeals and processes to automate and eliminate repetitive tasks. 
That means using services like You Can Book Me or using Amazon's Mechanical Turk, either manually or via an API. That goes over my head. Number 22, meditate daily. 23, find ways to remind yourself of your mission statement. 24, plan the day ahead. And 25, keep your best advisors close. So that article can be found over at Inc.com. I think it's a really good article. I think if you're interested in the success habits that uh, these executives shared, you should check it out. Inc.com, 25 executives share their daily habits responsible for their success. So uh, that's going to do it for today. I think that, you know, if I were you, I would encourage you to check out that Inc. article because we can go into all of the the commentary uh, on each point, but it's certainly... I think there's there's lessons to be learned there, things that you can take away from it and, and hopefully help you out. All right. That is going to do it for today. Um, I will be back tomorrow with legal Q&A and then Wednesday with business Q&A and then Thursday, our interview show, followed by Friday, our weekly wrap-up. So I want to thank everybody who has called and contacted and reached out recently. Um, I really do appreciate all the feedback and the comments. And um, a lot of you had, have called with questions that you like addressed during the legal Q&A segments. And you've had such really nice, positive, uplift, uplifting things to say. And I want you to know that it really means a lot to me to know that what we're doing here is beneficial and it's helping people. And uh, I thank you all for the comments that you've made. Um, you know, really can't say enough about it. There's there's so many people in this world that are so critical of what people do. Uh, and, you know, oftentimes you feel like the world is just filled with negative people. And over the, over the course of the, of the last few weeks, some of the positive things that have come in and, and comments, really appreciate it. And I, and I encourage you to... Um, you know, share your experiences with utlradio.com, with your friends and family. Let them know about the station. Let them know what we're doing here, what our mission is. You know, and our mission is really to be your business and legal, uh, your business success and legal information station. We want to give you some of the tools that you need as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, and also give you tools to help you handle some of the legal matters that you are undoubtedly going to occur in your lifetime. And whether you've had no run-ins with anything uh, in the legal realm and you know, you've know you lived for 25 years with nothing, you're fortunate. But if you push the edge of the envelope and become an entrepreneur or a business owner, you're going to have it. It's, it's going to be there. It's going to be something you have to deal with, whether it's a lawsuit or a contract or uh, employee issues. You're going to deal with it. And we want to give you some of the tools so that you don't necessarily need to feel helpless or confused or need to have an attorney for absolutely everything that you are going to be doing in life. Uh, Because it does become sometimes cost prohibitive. And I'd rather see you have the right information and be able to make a decision on your own as to whether or not you actually need to hire the attorney. All right, that's going to do it. Thanks for joining me today. I hope that you have a great rest of your day today. Tune in tomorrow for legal Q&A. If you've got any comments or questions, you can always, again, reach out to us. 
Just go to utlradio.com and links to all of our social media, websites, emails, everything's there. Check it out from there. And uh, please pass this information along. Tell your friends, family, and colleagues about utlradio.com, your business success and legal information station. I'll see you next time. Pros in the know start with Lowe's because Lowe's has the fixtures and the savings to get the job done right. Working on a big bath project? Now you can get up to 35% off select bath faucets. And you can even save up to 20% on select toilets. Plus, order what you need online and pick it up in-store. See Lowe'sforpros.com for details. So, pro, now that you know, start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 3-1 while supplies last. Selection varies by location, U.S. only.